Hello, and welcome once again to another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician and multiple Ironman athlete coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. A couple of legal judgments were handed down recently in cases of cyclists being struck by motorists. In one, a case involving friend of the podcast, Megan Hotman, the cyclist lawyer, who I interviewed back in episode 15. She saw her case come to an end in a way that is all too common in courts across this country. Back in May, Megan was struck by a car while she was riding to work, driven by a 19-year-old woman who was cited at the scene by police for reckless driving causing injury. Megan was deemed to have sustained a serious bodily injury, or SBI, a legal definition that I, as an emergency physician, am frequently asked to testify to in court. I should say at this point, in every single case that I have ever been asked to testify to SBI, I have never been cross-examined, and the SBI has always been accepted by the defense because juries accept the professional opinions of physicians in this matter. But in Megan's case, the district attorney decided against proceeding with prosecution under Colorado's new vulnerable road user law that for the first time imposes harsh penalties on drivers who cause injury to cyclists through reckless driving. So instead of losing her license and potentially facing other penalties, the driver in this case walked away with the all-too-common slap on the wrist that is de rigueur in Colorado when cyclists end up on the wrong end of a collision with a car. That 19-year-old is driving today, and one can only hope that the incident has chastened her, because certainly the legal proceedings wouldn't have. The DA in the case stated that they felt that it would have been too difficult to get the case to stick because of issues with the SBI declaration, a declaration that, I say again, I have never once been questioned on in court in my entire career. In another case, on the other side of the world, in a court in Australia, a 22-year-old woman was sentenced to three years of community service and a $2,000 fine for killing pro-cyclist Jason Lowndes when he was out for a training ride back in 2017. Now, I find the outcomes in both of these cases to be appalling and completely unacceptable. In Megan's case, it demonstrates the continued apathy of the legal system when it comes to prosecuting motorists who injure cyclists on Colorado roads. It often seems to me as though the legal system is designed to protect motorists, no matter the cost to pedestrians or cyclists in terms of lives lost. The prevailing feeling continues to be that the roads are for cars, and if you get injured or killed while you are doing something else out there, then it clearly must be your fault. With respect to the case in Australia, I have no doubt that the driver in that case is going to live with guilt and the trauma of what she did for the rest of her life, and that no matter what penalty she was faced with, her life is forever changed and not for the better. Still, the message that this light of a sentence sends is that you can take a life and fear almost no legal recourse. If you committed manslaughter with a firearm or a knife, you would certainly face jail time. Why is it that when you do so with a car, it should be any different? Now, I would not wish for this young woman to have faced a lengthy jail sentence that would simply have resulted in two lives being destroyed instead of just one. But to have the sentence that she got really boils my blood, because it could be easily be interpreted as a license to kill with impunity by other more malicious drivers who need not fear for any serious consequences for their actions. Until our legal system accepts its responsibility to represent all of us who are at risk, then none of us can feel particularly safe. On the show today, an increasingly common but still fairly unusual medical diagnosis has made some news in the world of cycling this year. Several high-profile professional cyclists have either had treatment for or had to retire because they were afflicted by iliac artery endofibrosis. To help us understand what this entity is and how it can be managed, I'm joined by my friend and vascular surgeon, Dr. Kent McKenzie from McGill University Health Center in Montreal. 
Dr. McKenzie is an avid cyclist himself and is going to join me to talk about this medical problem. Reels for Wheels is back with another segment of Keanu Reeves' films. For this episode, Janetta Iwanaki will join me to discuss the Matrix trilogy and how it can make your trainer rides that much more enjoyable. First, though, I have a medical question to consider. Neil wrote to me because he is considering including branched-chain amino acids as a tool to help enhance his recovery during training, and he wanted some advice as to whether or not this was a sound strategy. As always, I will dig into the science to try and get to the truth of the matter, and that's coming up right now. I have spent some time on this podcast discussing various modalities that triathletes employ to enhance recovery, because as you all know, being able to recover faster and better allows you to train harder and more frequently than you otherwise might be able. Of course, the manufacturers of various devices, apparel, and nutrition products know this as well, and have a predilection of, shall we say, exploiting the desire of athletes to find the latest and greatest way to find a recovery edge. As you know from hearing me report on the evidence on some of these things, there isn't a whole lot out there that really has been shown to be worthy of a lot of the claims that are made, but this isn't stopping anyone because recovery remains a booming industry. Well, for today's medical question, I have another recovery enhancement to consider, and it comes care of Neil, who wrote to ask about whether or not he should consider including branched-chain amino acids into his nutrition after workouts. Within the cells of our working muscles are large stores of protein. These proteins get broken down to a certain extent, depending on how hard and for how long we work out. That breakdown is what leads to muscle soreness and swelling, and if prolonged, can result in inflammation and the influx of inflammatory cells and chemicals that result in DOMS, or delayed onset muscle soreness. Exercise-induced muscle damage like this has negative effects in that it can reduce range of motion, in other words, cause stiffness, in the affected area, and cause the muscle to have reduced efficiency and a reduction in its ability to create force. Recovery, then, should be focused on minimizing and reversing damage as best and as fast as possible. The way in which our body naturally recovers from this kind of self-inflicted injury is to simply clear out the detritus from the broken-down protein and to synthesize new protein in its place. Now, new protein is made from amino acids. There are hundreds of amino acids that have been identified in nature, but only 21 of them are found in the human body, comprising the building blocks of the much larger protein molecules. Amino acids are made of a basic structure containing carbon, oxygen, hydrogen, and a single nitrogen atom, and a single chain that is unique to each amino acid. The structure of the side chain is what gives an amino acid its properties, and once incorporated into a protein molecule, has an impact on the larger structure as well. Now, we make many amino acids in our bodies through biochemical processes, but we do not have the capacity to make all of the ones that we need. Nine of them, in fact, cannot be made in our bodies and must be acquired through our diet. These so-called essential amino acids are fortunately pretty ubiquitous and quite easily obtained. Within this group are several amino acids with a specific structure to the side group that, rather than being linear, gives them a branched appearance. And these branched-chain amino acids are valine, leucine, and isoleucine, and are found in abundance in muscle protein. Now, one of the ways that has been suggested to support recovery is by ingesting protein immediately after working out in order to provide a source of amino acids to the recovering muscle cells and provide an abundant supply of the building blocks required for protein synthesis. 
Over the years, all manner of protein sources have been looked at, and research has occasionally, though not consistently, borne out the theory that protein containing nutrition after exercise, especially after high-intensity resistance exercise, such as weightlifting, can in fact enhance recovery and prevent some of the damage associated with the exercise itself. Unfortunately, when it comes to endurance sports such as cycling or running, the evidence supporting the use of protein supplementation has been far from clear. The research on this has been really all over the place, and for the most part, it seems that there's no real benefit to protein as a post-exercise nutrition source over any other kind of nutrition, say carbohydrates, for example. More recently, though, there's been more interest in looking at specific components of proteins, that is to say, specific amino acids, in this case, the branched-chain amino acids, as a potential recovery enhancer. Now, the reason for this is because basic science research that has looked at the genetic intracellular and serum marker responses to the ingestion of some types of amino acids found that ingesting branched-chain amino acids caused an upregulation of genes related to protein synthesis and caused increased serum markers of new protein formation as well as decreased markers of muscle breakdown and of inflammation. So this suggested that ingesting branched-chain amino acids might have a positive effect on recovery. So this has led to a host of studies evaluating the impact of taking either individual branched-chain amino acids or combinations of them to determine if there is any impact on the speed of recovery and related to that improved performance in athletes. And the research on this actually goes back quite some time. And the findings, though, have been pretty wildly inconsistent. The best evidence that I could come up with on this was a meta-analysis published in 2017 that compiled the results of the eight best studies in the literature to try to consider and answer two different questions. Does the use of branched-chain amino acids after exercise decrease perception of muscle soreness? And do their use result in any decrease in the biochemical markers of muscle damage? Now, most of these studies looked specifically at weight training, but some included prolonged endurance activities as well. And essentially, the answers to both of these questions was pretty resoundingly no. When compared to placebo, the pooled results of the eight different studies found no statistical or clinically relevant differences in athlete-reported muscle soreness, nor in blood markers of muscle damage after using a cocktail of branched-chain amino acids after exercise. I did find a few smaller studies that looked at endurance sports specifically, and they all showed pretty similar results. In one, researchers looked at the effect of leucine dosing on protein synthesis in cyclists, and were able to show that, in fact, as the amount of ingested leucine went up, so too did intracellular protein synthesis. But this study did not look at whether or not this translated to any functional improvements in recovery or performance. Another study compared branched-chain amino acids to carbohydrates as a recovery drink and found no differences when it came to indicators of recovery or performance, while another that I found had the title, quote, branched-chain amino acids do not enhance recovery or performance in untrained athletes performing endurance exercise, end quote. So I think that's an example of my best title of the year award, where reading the title of the article tells you everything you need to know about the study. Okay, so let's put this all together in a way that's coherent, because right now it feels like all we're doing is meandering through a sweet briar patch of research that is kind of hard to make sense of. Essentially, and that is an appropriate word when we speak of these amino acids, branched-chain amino acids, when taken immediately after strenuous exercise, seem to have a minor positive effect on increasing intramuscular protein synthesis, decreasing muscular damage and inflammation. 
To date, though, none of these biochemical changes have been shown to translate to any functional benefits in terms of improved recovery or performance. Still, branched-chain amino acids are safe, and so long as you don't have kidney dysfunction, really pose no specific health concerns when taken in the amounts recommended by manufacturers. Now, these supplements aren't hugely expensive, but you do kind of have to be wary of how they are marketed for use. For example, I came across one product that cost $40 for 30 servings. However, if you were going to use this product as the research suggests it would be used, and that is to say, after doing particularly strenuous workouts, then you can imagine you'll get a reasonable bang for your buck, even if the actual benefits, physically, are in question. Unfortunately, the label for this product suggests taking one serving in advance of exercise, and then a serving every two hours of exercise, and that is clearly not supported by any research that I can find. If you took the product that way, it would result in a significantly higher cost and for the same unclear benefit, if there really is any in the first place. So to answer Neil specifically, based on what I found in doing this research, I personally am not going to be incorporating branched-chain amino acids into my own recovery nutrition after strenuous exercise. I wouldn't, however, tell you point-blank not to do so for yourself. There are clearly some theoretical and biochemical rationale for why these supplements could provide some benefit. And if you wanted to take them for those reasons, there don't really seem to be any downsides to doing so. So in the end, as long as you aren't hoping for any significant noticeable functional benefits in recovery or performance, the decision is yours. Hopefully, now you have the information upon which to make it. Do you have a question for me to consider answering on the show? Well, email it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. Iliac artery endofibrosis is a potentially debilitating and career-ending ailment that affects an unknown number of cyclists and triathletes to varying degrees. When the iliac artery, that is the large branch off of the aorta to the leg, fibrosis, the internal caliber of the artery narrows, and this restricts blood flow to the affected leg. At its worst, blood flow can be so impaired that muscles can actually suffocate and exercise becomes impossible. Recently, two professional cyclists on the world tour indicated that they were afflicted by this problem and have had to retire from the sport as a consequence, joining a host of others who preceded them. To get a better understanding of this medical problem and to be able to discuss the scope of the issue as well as what possible therapies there are for it, I've invited Dr. Kent McKenzie to join me for a discussion. Kent graduated from medical school and did his general surgery residency at McGill University in Montreal, Quebec. He completed a fellowship in vascular surgery and further training in interventional radiology at the University of Chicago before returning on staff at the McGill University Health Center in 2001, where to this day he is currently associate professor and chief of the division of vascular surgery. Kent is also an avid cyclist, though despite his background as a high-level competitive swimmer, he no longer participates in triathlon and for some reason does not see why this is of grave concern to me. For today, though, we'll forgive him for this error in judgment and welcome to the TriDoc podcast to talk about iliac artery endofibrosis. Welcome, Kent. Hey, Jeff. How's it going? It's going great. So um, this is uh, obviously a medical issue that has garnered... um, fair amount of attention in the press recently. I sent you an article that uh, I had seen about the two uh, bicycle pros that had to retire because of this. Fabio Aru has also been affected by it, uh, as have some other high-level, high-profile cyclists. Is there any research or population study that gives a sense of the scope of this problem and who is most likely to be affected by it? 
Yeah, I mean, I think uh, as you indicated, as awareness of the of the, of the diagnosis and the pathology has become uh, more to the forefront over the years. I would say over the last twenty to thirty years, we certainly learned a lot more about uh, this entity. Um, in terms of the scope, I think it's important to to kind of put into perspective, as as you very accurately described, uh, the 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 problem. I think it's always good to to first of all contrast iliac endofibrosis um, in 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 terms of what it isn't as a disease. And so many people who are listening will will know about the typical. Um, disease states or pathologies that lead to hardening of the arteries and poor circulation that we, you know, we typically see in, in people as they get older and often associated with, you know, risk factors that that are, are quite apparent at causing heart disease, stroke, and problems of the peripheral arteries like smoking, hypertension, um, bad, bad uh, lipid disorders, or high cholesterol, and diabetes. So, that is not the clinical scenario um, uh, that we see iliac endofibrosis. In fact, this is a very different, and and as you indicated and alluded to, it's actually quite uncommon. It's more of a prolifer- proliferative or a hypertrophic thickening of the artery of the uh, lower extremity. We can get into the the um, the localization of the disease a little bit more because there are some variants to the disease, and and as you said, results in a dramatic reduction in arterial blood flow, particularly and and often only with exercise. In terms of um, an idea about how prevalent this problem uh, is, as I think you know, your initial question was, I think we really don't know, but there is a recognition that prevalence is likely increasing, and that prevalence is probably, uh, and, and perhaps even incidents, might be increasing as a consequence of many factors, including an increased popularity of cycling, but not only an increased popularity of cycling, but uh, an increased uh, um, seriousness of training loads in, in amateur cyclists and, in fact, in triathletes. Um, and there's an increased awareness of the condition for reasons that you alluded to. Uh, with some high-profile cases, and in fact, it may be that many cyclists have actually known an individual or friend or a colleague or a fellow cyclist who's suffered from this uh, diagnosis. Um, it's thought that maybe up to 10 to 20 percent of elite-level cyclists have some perhaps mild uh, hemodynamic evidence uh, that might suggest a diagnosis of iliac endofibrosis, but have to be quite cautious in interpreting this because there could be a lot of um, a bias in the way and the selection of individuals uh, that resulted in those particular numbers, but uh, it's relatively uncommon even in uh, elite level athletes. So 10 to 20%, I assume that's not 10 to 20% with severe symptoms. That's just 10 to 20% with any degree of this Correct. entity. Yeah. Correct. And, Correct. and what is it about cycling specifically that leads to this happening? So, I don't think that you know that anyone has a clear uh, idea of an all-encompassing single factor. Uh, as with many um, uh, disease states, uh, many factors are, are at play, and definitely uh, things that are proposed to be uh, causative factors are the repetitive movement of the uh, of the cycling stroke. And what happens to the artery during that cycling stroke, which includes um, bending, even twisting, uh, and probably repetitive trauma of the artery by the iliopsoas muscle group, uh, which is sitting posterior to the external iliac artery, 
uh, in the vast majority, nearly all patients. And, and that correlates with pathologic assessments, which suggest that that posterior, the posterior wall or the part of the wall right up against the muscle is the, is the area that is most typically affected. Um, we know that the likelihood or the, one of the strong associations of developing iliac endofibrosis is a correlate to what I what I would call volume of uh, of exposure to the activity. And if we talk about cycling, there have been a couple of studies looking at uh, sort of the number of kilometers or miles in a lifetime uh, required uh, or or seen patients with iliac endofibrosis. Some people have proposed that a cyclist would have to, you know, spend seventy five thousand kilometers on their bike in terms of distance in order to develop iliac endofibrosis, but that's highly variable. And there's been cases of iliac endofibrosis and identified in patients with far less um, exposure uh, to distance on their bikes and other other individuals diagnosed who, if you took an occupational history, if they're professional athletes, they might have double or more than that in their lifetime. But definitely training volume, probably in in relation to time and intensity, uh, combined with the movements and trauma that I described, and possibly also um, identified more more in an individual who might have some anatomic predisposition to the development of the problem. And I think those anatomic um, risk factors are not very well defined. Now, I'm sure there hasn't been any real good science around some of these things, but um, theoretically, can you imagine how maybe shorter crank arms can help with this, how maybe, you know, things that open up the hip angle and allow for less flexion at the hip might protect against this from developing or for people who maybe have mild, uh, you know, symptoms from this that, that could potentially be helpful? So I think people have proposed or have, or have, have um, postulated that uh, the positioning on a bike um, or perhaps poor positioning on a bike in terms of bike fit uh, might be an exacerbating factor. So that if someone is not as you is not fitted in a way as you as you just described, particularly as it relates to the hip angle, that that could exacerbate the uh, excessive force on the artery. Although there's very little data that actually looks at that specifically. Um, and in, in fact, and you can correct me, you being you being a, a triathlete and actually not a cyclist, you could correct me if I'm wrong here. But, uh, <laughs> but um, I think that the the triathlon the the time trial or triathlon position uh, probably does open up that hip angle more than a typical um, traditional cycling uh, position and fit. But as you know, iliac endofibrosis is seen uh, quite commonly in triathletes as well. So. Uh, it you know a fit that changes hip angle is not necessarily going to be protective. All right, so let's talk about the disease itself. What what are the symptoms that someone might have that would alert them to the possibility that uh, this could be an underlying problem for them? Right. So I think the the first thing that's really important is that uh, unless we're we're dealing with in a very advanced case um, at rest, you know, individuals are completely normal. The leg looks normal in all respects. The appearance of the limb. You know, if someone was to do a detailed pulse examination for arterial perfusion of the leg, everything would be otherwise normal. And then the symptom onset, again, typically would occur uh, at the upper at the upper end of effort level. So during high level uh, sustained effort and the, 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 the triad or the, the three symptoms that are most typical would be 
pain, typically in the thigh uh, more than the lower leg, leg numbness or just the development of extreme leg weakness to the extent that people often just describe it uh, as the leg uh, feeling like it goes completely dead. Um, typically, symptoms will resolve fairly rapidly, although this is quite variable. Uh, the resolution back to a, to a normal feeling leg can can take minutes or many more minutes, um, and but typically will resolve after cessation of the activity. And again, thigh muscle atrophy is definitely observed and described in some longstanding cases, but that would be considered a pretty late advanced finding. And how long does the disease take to progress from the you know the earliest stages where the artery starts to show some narrowing to the point where patients become severely symptomatic? It's a good question. I'm not, not sure that that's entirely defined. And in fact, if you look at uh, angiographic imaging of people with iliac endofibrosis, you know, as vascular surgeons, we're used to seeing dramatic, um, highly uh, evident narrowing in arteries uh, due to other disease processes. And in fact, the, the radiologic images of patients with uh, iliac endofibrosis are not typically that dramatic. The, the findings of the narrowing in most cases look um, quite minimal. Um, the distinction comes uh, in regards to the length of these narrowings throughout the entire length of the iliac artery and reductions in flow at high effort relates to both the degree to which the artery is narrowed, but also the length over which the artery is narrowed. Um, and I, it's, uh, we think about the hemodynamics of arterial stenoses or, or blockages becoming uh, significant and resulting in reduced blood flow uh, in, the, in the muscles beyond the artery when a narrowing gets to 50% or greater. But certainly people with iliac endofibrosis can develop symptoms with lesser degrees of, of narrowing and stenosis of the arteries. And that's probably related, as I indicated, to the combination of the, the, the narrowing, the degree of narrowing and the length of the lesion. And again, I think it also would depend a little bit on the, the level at which the athlete is exerting themselves and the duration of time uh, at these high, high efforts. So much more highly functioning uh, or high uh, athletes with a higher uh, potential for effort are going to develop symptoms sooner because their muscles are demanding higher oxygen delivery through their blood, which then they're not getting at those high efforts. So it's variable, I guess and, is how I would answer that. And does the size of the individual matter as well? Because would a, a larger, let's say taller man, have a larger caliber artery in a normal state than, uh, say, a shorter woman? They would. We, you know, if, if, if we examine you know, normal diameters of arteries, uh, comparing men in terms of their height and comparing men to women and women in terms of their height, for sure there's a correlation in height. Uh, uh, between sexes and uh, in regards to height. But in fact, this uh, entity is seen more commonly in men than it is in women. Oh, interesting. Prob- okay. Probably about 70 to 80% of cases that have been described, at least, have been described in men. Whether that represents the, the true nature of the d- disease distribution uh, could be argued. But, you know, in terms of the reported cases in the literature, certainly it's, it's felt to be seen uh, more commonly in men. It, but it's definitely identified in women. And could could the development in women be related to uh, their, the small nature of their vessel? That's possible. Um, but as you know, if you look at the the uh, high level of at, um, elite or professional athletes uh, whose diagnosis is in the public domain, 
Uh, we clearly see it's been described in, in men and women, and we see it's been described in large men, small men, large women, small small right. women. So right. it's not it's not not going to be protective necessarily. Yeah. And, and how is it diagnosed? Is it radiographic diagnosis, or is it really a clinical diagnosis? What one of the themes that comes out commonly in reported series of uh, iliac endofibrosis is the diagnosis is typically made late. So athletes are often suffering from symptoms for a long period of time uh, and have been evaluated by a whole slew of uh, medical professionals, whether it be orthopedics, uh, sports therapists, uh, can run down the list. And uh, it's only in, un, until someone who's seen the problem before uh, identifies a need to, to see a vascular specialist. It could be a vascular surgeon, but it could also be someone who's able to, you know, take the appropriate history and then and, and do the appropriate initially non-invasive testing. So certainly the history is important. You have the patient who has the risk factors. So you're talking about a high-level athlete who's a cyclist or a runner or a cross-country skier, triathlete, um, and uh, describes the symptoms that we talked about before. And really the diagnosis then uh, is not initially made with any sort of direct imaging of the artery, but non-invasive testing uh, in, in a vascular laboratory. Uh, where we would do ankle, ankle brachial pressure indices and look at those numbers uh, before and uh, after exercise. And uh, what, what that test does is measuring the blood pressure in the arm uh, and at the level of the ankle. And generally, those should be about the same number um, uh, prior to exercise. And post-exercise, in normal individuals, the numbers would be unchanged. But in people with iliac endofibrosis, the blood pressure at the ankle, which is um, – is uh, uh, signifying the blood pressure in the leg will drop dramatically with onset of symptoms. And that's pretty pathognomonic of the diagnosis of iliac endofibrosis. And then duplex scanning, which is a form of ultrasound evaluation of blood flow through the artery, that can also be very helpful to identify the flow disturbances that are seen in patients with iliac endofibrosis. Now, you know, other direct imaging like angiography of some sort, whether that be actual direct uh, intraarterial angiography or CT uh, scan uh, uh, mediated angiography or MR angiography have also been used, but typically those would be used as confirmatory tests in a patient who ultimately is going to undergo some kind of interventional therapy. All right. Speaking of interventions, uh, what are the possible therapeutic interventions that can be done for this? Yeah, so I think the key is that uh, there really is no medical therapy available for this problem um, and that uh, with, without, uh, without intervention, meaning that in an individual who is confirmed to have the diagnosis, uh, uh, stopping, it's believed that stopping the activity that is brought on the diagnosis, so for example, stopping cycling when the diagnosis is made, is more than likely and probably um, going to result in a complete uh, halting of the progression of the disease. That's, I think that's a fair assessment of what's been observed. Does it, and, does it result in reversal or does it right. just stop progression? Right. So it's a great question. So it's possible that exercising at lower, uh, uh, less than maximal intensity might reduce the degree of symptoms, but there really is no evidence that, re that reducing or stopping the activity will actually result in the resolution of the endofibrosis. And there's certainly been no uh, longitudinal studies or none that I'm aware of that have actually looked at uh, hemodynamics over time in patients who were diagnosed and then actually adhered to a no cycling uh, lifestyle after diagnosis to see if the disease regret to, to see if actual disease regression occurs. Um, this sort of underlines the 
the future issue and the potential benefit of case registry data to track the outcomes of patients that not only have been treated with surgery, but have been treated conservatively without intervention, uh, of, of which the majority of patients are, are not intervened on surgically. But if we think about other examples of non-atherosclerotic uh, or non uh, or other similar arterial pathologies that occur from a compressive or traumatic, a repetitive traumatic um, injury, uh, when you relieve that um, stimulus uh, resolution of the arterial lesion has been observed. So there is some potential that it could resolve, but there's there's nothing in the in the literature that indicates that. So I think the key again is that in a patient with iliac endofibrosis, uh, not operating on the, on the individual who actually ceases the activity is not a dangerous approach. It's a safe approach, and the likelihood of that individual going on to develop some kind of complication that puts their their limb at risk or certainly their life at risk is is extremely low. Um, and you've for, mentioned surgery, so I'm assuming that that right, involves stenting. So, yeah, I, I read that article that you sent to me today, and I, I, I think there's a glaring um, misrepresentation in that article in that uh, they they alluded to or implied that the treatment of iliac endofibrosis was to uh, treat that treat patients with stenting, and I, I, I strongly disagree with that statement. Um, angioplasty and stenting, there would be there's no consensus in the literature that angioplasty and stenting is an appropriate treatment for patients with uh, iliac endofibrosis. Uh, the the, tr- the treatment of this uh, pathology is surgical. Um, and uh, one of the risks of stenting in an artery that is narrowed by a fibrotic problem that is going to be continued to be exposed to the same um, forces that have led to the pathology are, are highly likely to result in stent uh, occlusion, and that is going to result in a worse problem. So really, surgery is the most effective interventional therapy uh, in patients where intervention uh, is felt to be appropriate. Um, and what that involves, this is not, you know, this is not small, small uh, surgery. It's not a haircut. It's real operation. So it's an actual operation where the artery that is affected is exposed and uh, the thickened layer within the arterial wall is actually physically removed. And then we use a technique called uh, an, uh, an angioplasty using another um, sort of um, vascular tissue, typically a piece of vein, to use that to um, reclose the artery to allow that artery to have a much larger um, internal diameter to optimize and normalize the blood, blood flow through that vessel. And in people whose iliac endofibrosis occurs in the most typical location, as you mentioned, in the external iliac artery, that is a surgery that is in the lower abdominal region um, and uh, is typically extended to the artery above or down into the femoral artery in the groin uh, based on the extent of the, the lesion. And so it's it's a real operation, and uh, it's not an operation to be taken lightly. Yeah, that's not trivial at all. What you're describing is serious surgery. Um, how, uh, what's the, like, how often is this successful? So um, I think that there's enough uh, accumulated literature in relatively large case series by centers who have done significant enough numbers that conclusions can be made that the overall symptomatic um, uh, relief uh, or the relief of symptoms in patients undergoing surgery is probably in the 80% range. So what that means is that 
there's at least a 15 to 20% uh, risk of failure of resolution of the symptoms. And now that can be due to a number of factors. Hopefully it's not because you're operating on the patient for a presumed diagnosis of iliac endofibrosis, sorry, a presumed diagnosis of iliac endofibrosis. And in fact, the diagnosis is wrong. That would obviously explain why there would be no resolution. But the extent of surgery might not include all the diseased artery. Uh, it could be that the degree of endarterectomy that's done is uh, is inadequate. There could be iliac, there could be endofibrosis in other vessels that have not been identified. So there are a number of reasons why uh, resolution of symptoms would not be complete. And and there's definitely risk of uh, complications of the operation. Yeah, um, I'm sure. So the, there are some nerve complications that can occur. There are nerves in the area that can be injured, and all this sort of standard slew of surgical complications as it relates to vascular surgery and operating on arteries uh, can exist as well. Yeah. And I'm guessing that, you know, when we talk about the 80% who have successful resolution, we're not necessarily talking about return to cycling. The endpoint would be, uh, for resolution of symptoms, would be the return to prior activity, oh, prior to the development of endofibrosis. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then is the surgery considered curative or will there be recurrence uh, in some of these people? Um, most surgical uh, series looking at uh, um, operations for iliac endofibrosis will usually include uh, in the range of about 10 to 15 percent of their patients are patients who have been operated on in the past. And there have definitely been reports uh, of, of athletes. And in fact, I'm aware of a few who have undergone multiple operations, and the expectation would be if you're being reoperated on a second time or or third time for recurrent iliac endofibrosis, the the success rates of the subsequent operations are not going to be as high as the initial index operation would be. Well, that's really sobering. Uh, this is obviously a devastating diagnosis, as we've seen uh, in the cycling world, and as you mentioned, not terribly common, much more common in people who are doing large volumes of cycling at high effort, and that is not the general, uh, you know, that's not the age grouper uh, in triathlon. So fortunately, this is not going to affect a lot of people in the age group ranks, but I know at least myself personally, a couple of people who have been affected by it, and it can be quite... Uh, quite a blow to uh, one of them had to just get out of triathlon altogether. The other one is just dealing with an early diagnosis now. So, yeah, uh, clearly. And I, I think, yeah, and I think the challenge in, in, the, from, in the surgical domain is is uh, more pronounced in the non-professional athlete because, um, pr- you know, a professional athlete developing iliac endofibrosis who has a surgical option in front of them that will allow them to continue their career, continue to make a living at what they do, uh, is going to have a different perspective on uh, risk assessment for treatment than a uh, non-professional but highly functioning, you know, sort of elite level or age group uh, athlete. Um, but the, the dis- so the discussions can actually be much more difficult with the non-professional athlete because, uh, as you're aware. Uh, all of us love doing what we're doing. We love being on the bike or we love running. We love doing the activity because of the the things that it does for our overall well-being. And we want to keep doing that. And if you're told that uh, you have to stop doing the activity, many people will say, well, I want an operation. But, we're, you know, we're not we're, we're taking amateur athletes and exposing them to the risk of, uh, of, of surgery. And so those decisions have to cannot be taken lightly and, and really have to be approached with uh, a lot of introspection. Yeah. 
Well, Kent McKenzie is the uh, chief of the Division of Vascular Surgery at the McGill University, McGill University Health Center. And if I'm understanding what he's telling us, he's saying that as cyclists, you should all incorporate more swimming and running to avoid this terrible <laughs> uh, problem of uh, uh, iliac artery endofibrosis. Uh, seriously, though, uh, that was a really fascinating conversation. And I thank you so much for being here today, Kent. Pleasure. For, pleasure to be here, Jeff. And now it's time once again for Reels for Wheels, that part of the show when I am joined by multiple Ironman finisher and film buff Janetta Iwanaki to give you our picks for movies that you might want to watch while putting time in on the trainer. Some people Zwift, others like to suffer fest, but Janetta and I have a fondness for movies to make those rides more bearable. Welcome, Janetta. Thanks for having me back. Glad to be here. So we talked about John Wick uh, on our last episode. We're going to continue with another theme of Keanu Reeves' movies, this time going further back in his library, if you will, back to 1999 and The Matrix and the 2003 sequel, The Matrix Reloaded. Uh, these two movies, especially The Matrix, really, I think we'll, we'll begin with a discussion of that movie, really redefined uh, the sci-fi genre at the time. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, that's absolutely true. I think back to when I first saw the film back in uh, 1999 when it came out. I was in college at the time, and uh, I went to a small liberal arts school where people came from all sorts of different backgrounds, and I knew way more people who wrote their theses about that movie than just about anything else, whether it was um, people who were majoring in film studies or philosophy or religion. Um, and I think, quite honestly, that was sort of the lens I'd seen this film through originally was sort of that uh, layer of film analysis. Um, but, uh, you know, going back and watching it again not too long ago while writing The Trainer, I was reminded that it's just a really damn good action movie, too. Yeah, there's so many levels, right? I mean, uh, the technical aspects with uh, the special effects, uh, bullet time, uh, the uh, filmmaking aspects with, you know, just the subtle things that the directors did to uh, visually let you know where you were in the movie, uh, use of a green filter whenever you're in the Matrix, use of a blue filter whenever you're um, in the real world to give you that harsh cold light, and then uh, yellow filter for the training uh, zone sort of in between. Those kinds of things were not the, the kinds of things that you traditionally associated with sci-fi movies, which tended to rely much more on, you know, high-tech, maybe special effects at the time, but certainly were much more straightforward in their storytelling. And this one was so much more of a uh, really deeply woven, uh, very intellectual story uh, for a sci-fi movie especially. That was not the standard. Yeah, I think that's totally true. And um, the other thing that I think was really unique about it was the level of technical execution that you saw, um, both from the actors as well as from the filmmakers. Um, you alluded to some of this, but the action sequences were really uh, stunning and second to none. Um, and all of the work that the actors put in, you know, with months of training ahead of time, doing a lot of their own wire stunts, um, was really unique and um, quite a leap for what we were seeing in other action films. Yeah, the um, the stunt directors at that time, one of whom, uh, Chad Stahelski, went on to form a stunt company that really only or, or principally works on choreographing fight sequences for movies and, of course, went on to do all the John Wick films. Uh, they got their start in The Matrix, and you can see the origins of some of the work that they do in all of those really intricate, uh, very detailed fight sequences that go on in this movie. And uh, yeah, all of the actors worked for months in advance to to learn some of the basic kung fu and basic uh, 
um, martial arts that they needed. Uh, I know that Carrie Ann Moss, uh, Lawrence Fishburne, and of course, Canada Reeves spent months in advance training and mm-hmm. learning how to do that, which was very unusual, especially when you consider that uh, the, you know, the writers and directors, the uh, Wachowski brothers, now sisters, um, you know, were really uh, relatively unknown. I mean, this was mm-hmm. kind of a big deal for big name stars to put their, you know, time and energy and 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 lend their star power to two people who really were breaking into the business in such a big way. Yeah, and I think too, you know, you look at what a difficult time the Wachowskis had in selling the film to studios. Um, a lot of studios didn't really see that this was going to take off, um, and which, to be honest, was pretty short-sighted. But um, they thought it was too cerebral, you know, too esoteric, um, and what really I think made it work in the end was that it was something that made people's brains think and also had stunning action to entertain you in the meantime. Yeah. And think about how, um, you know, in the past up to that point, the really successful sci-fi movies of the seventies and eighties, you know, star Wars, star Trek, um, you know, I mean, those genre movies were really uh, based or driven on story and driven on light character development, whereas these mm-hmm. movies had really much more deeper characters uh, and actors that just did such a great job. I mean, Hugo Weaving as the Agent Smith, I mean, it's pretty hard to f- imagine anybody else in that role doing such a good job. Yeah, he's still one of the best movie villains of all time in my books, yeah. uh, without question. As you can see, we've had our eye on you for some time now, Mr. Anderson. It seems that you've been living two lives. In one life, you're Thomas A. Anderson, program writer for a respectable software company. You have a social security number, you pay your taxes, and you help your landlady carry out her garbage. The other life is lived in computers, where you go by the hacker alias Neo and are guilty of virtually every computer crime we have a law for. One of these lives has a future, and one of them does not. I'm going to be as forthcoming as I can be, Mr. Anderson. You're here because we need your help. We know that you've been contacted by a certain individual, a man who calls himself Morpheus. Now, whatever you think you know about this man is irrelevant. He is considered by many authorities to be the most dangerous man alive. My colleagues believe that I am wasting my time with you, but I believe you wish to do the right thing. We're willing to wipe the slate clean, give you a fresh start. All that we're asking in return is your cooperation in bringing a known terrorist to justice. Yeah. Wow, that sounds like a really good deal. But I think I got a better one. How about I give you the finger and you give me my phone call? Mr. Anderson. 
You disappoint me. You can't scare me with this Gestapo crap. I know my rights. I want my phone call. Tell me, Mr. Anderson, what good is a phone call if you're unable to speak? But I think, um, you know, you're hitting on some of the things that make this a really great trainer film. Um, I think the fact that this movie has such fantastic kinetic action, it's got great music that moves the action along, um, really you know, impressive filmmaking that pulls you into the world. And yet while it's intellectual, it doesn't necessarily take all of your attention, um, is really for me what still makes it work as a trainer film 20 years later. Yeah, I agree. You can watch it over and over again. And, but because of those layers of you know, intellectual aspects, you can find find things all the time like yeah. it's got all kinds of literature and religious references woven into it uh you know follow the white rabbit um the book that he opens yes, to find simulacra and simulation right uh, one of the uh postmodern classics from the 1980s that apparently i think all of the cast had to read to try to wrap their brains around what was happening in this world the idea of you know a simulated world and what that meant yeah and i think they 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 struck the right balance of that in the first movie um, we'll talk a little bit more about the, the second and third movies in a second, but, uh, you know, they kind of went down a little bit maybe off the path on the ra- or maybe off the rails, if you will, in the second and third movies. But the first movie, it, it definitely was a mind bender till you sorted out what was going on. And uh, But you were able to figure it out and you were able to stick with mm-hmm. it. Um, I thought that uh, great turns by people like Gloria Foster as the Oracle mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the story just kept you riveted right till the end. Well, and I think that one thing they did really well in the first film, and we can talk about whether or how well it was not done in the other films, is they really kept the story focused on a small group of people that you got to know well and were really invested in. Even the, you know, even the small side characters, um, you really felt like there was a depth to them um, and an integrity to them that I think really made you invested in that world. And I would argue that that's actually some of where they lost a lot of their um, power in the later films was that they tried to go too big too quickly. You zoomed way out and all of a sudden you have, you know, hundreds of people you're supposed to care about, which is hard to do. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Um, You know, thinking again about some of the things that really work in this film and thinking, you know, here we are some 20 years later and uh, many lines from the movie, many references from the movie still, you know, permeate and percolate into our culture today, you know, take the red pill. Uh, I know Kung Fu. (laughs) (laughs) Still one of my favorites. (laughs) Yeah, some classic lines. Uh, I think you mentioned uh, to me uh, about uh, something that you use as a mantra. Oh, yeah. Stop trying to hit me and hit me. That's my favorite. Right. And and I I referenced the line from uh, the training sequence, the Kung Fu training sequence, which is, uh, don't think you can, know you can. Mm -hmm. Uh, Paraphrasing a little bit, but something that I use and repeat to myself often at the in the later stages of a race when I'm struggling. Uh, so yeah, a, a great movie and one that uh, has held up exceptionally well uh, despite its age. The special effects look just as good today as they did 20 years ago. Um, which brings us to the second film, um, The Matrix Reloaded, which came out four years later. Uh, had pretty much the same cast with a few additions. Uh, I think it there was no way it was going to hold up. It could right. never have the same originality. Yeah. And so I think they tried to get around that by investing a little bit more in the mind-bendingness of the story and mm-hmm. in doing so, I think they go off the rails a little bit. I don't know what your thoughts are. Yeah, I think they um, 
to some extent, I think they were trying almost trying too hard is how it felt to me. Um, they were trying to recreate some of that magic while still trying to make everything bigger and better and badder than it was the first time around. And I would argue there are some cases where that works. So um, when you see, uh, I think what the filmmakers referred to as the Burly Brawl, where it's uh, Neo fighting um, all of the Agent Smiths, um, that's pretty impressive. And that action sequence is pretty spectacular. But then there are some other things where you're like, ah, you know, why are we trying to make this so much more complicated than perhaps it needs to be? When you've got not just the Oracle now, but you've got the Oracle and the Keymaker and the Merovingian, Merovingian yeah. and Persephone. Yeah. Um, on top of all that, then you've also got all this action going on in the real world with kind of large mechanized, yeah. you know. Yeah, it became fights. overly complex. It becomes really, yeah. yeah, it becomes difficult to sort of unweave where things are at. And also, to be totally honest, it becomes harder to care um, because yeah. there's just so much focus on the spectacle and perhaps less focus on the actual characters. And you knew you were going to get to Zion in the second movie because that's all they talked about in the first movie. So you knew you were going to have to see it. Uh, The the thing that I kept sort of like tripping over and they kind of gave us this soliloquy at some point where one of the elders of Zion is explaining how well we rely on machines even while we fight them. And I'm like, wow, they're really pretty advanced down there in Zion with their computers and their holographs and everything else. I'm like... uh, how did they get this all going exactly? So, you know, I mean, it was it was pretty, you know, I thought silly. But, and again, reaching on a lot of the obscure, you know, literary references, Merovingian referring to mm-hmm. a Frankish destiny back in the 1500s. Uh, although I will say the whole scene with Persephone, I mean, Monica Bellucci. Oh, uh, she's fantastic. Yeah, she's terrific. If you want the key maker, follow me. Get out. I am so sick and tired of his bullshit. On and on. Pompous prick. A long time ago, when we first came here, it was so different. He was so different. He was like you. I'll give you what you want. But you have to give me something. What? A kiss. Excuse me. I want you to kiss me as if you were kissing her. Why? You love her. She loves you. It's all over you both. A long time ago, I knew what that felt like. I want to remember it. I want to sample it. That's all. Just a sample. Why don't you sample this instead? Trinity. Such emotion over something so small. It's just a kiss. Why should we trust you? If I don't deliver you to the key maker, she can kill me. All right. You have to make me believe I am her. All right. Terrible. Forget it. Wait. Okay. 
going to last. Come with me. And an interesting coincidence, I, I love finding coincidences that can tie some of our movies together. So we, we talked last time about John Wick, uh, the actor who plays the doctor in John mm-hmm. Wick and in the third chapter is Randall Duck Kim. And Randall Duck Kim plays the key maker in Matrix Reloaded. So he does, yeah. uh, there's a nice uh, tie in for those movies. Um, but as an action film to drive a trainer ride, The Matrix Reloaded does hold up because there are some frenetic action sequences. You mentioned the fight uh, with all of the Mm -hmm. agents. There's also this completely ridiculous but yet uh, sublimely entertaining car chase that takes place on a freeway that they actually built for the purpose of filming um, with uh, some very uh, interesting characters played by some ghost twins. I mean, (laughs) uh, there's some good stuff to keep you entertained and keep you getting through a trainer. Yeah, and I'll be totally honest. If it were an action film completely divorced from the original Matrix, I would probably have a more favorable view of it. I think I just, you have such high hopes coming off of the first film that it's hard for anything to live up to it. Um, But I agree, as a trainer film goes, you know, it's actually, it's quite good. You know, it pulls you in, it's got the action, it's got a world that you're a part of. Um, And once again, they really uh, do a great job of pulling music together with those action sequences, which for me is just sort of fantastic when it comes to trying to do intervals on the trainer. Yeah. And do we want to spend any time talking about the final film in the series, The Matrix Revolutions? Uh, I mean... I'll devote a little bit of time to just one action sequence from it. I would say overall as a film, it's hard. It's it's actually not a terrible trainer film, but it's not a great film overall. Um, The action is too big, too confusing, um, which is fine when you're on the trainer, but perhaps less fine when you're sitting in a movie theater. Um, However, I do still think that the final fight scene between uh, Neo and the agent's or really Agent Smith, um, in the rain where they are just going big at each other um, in completely new and different ways. I think that fight sequence is actually really great. Um, But I would argue that you could probably just watch that one sequence. Yeah, I mean, it's just too much, again, too much mumbo-jumbo in that movie. Uh, Too much that, I mean, seeing the movie, I think, more than once even, I still don't really understand. And and I I remember at the end of it going, you know what, in the end, I don't care that I don't understand because I think I was fine after two movies. (laughs) Um, But, um, and unfortunately, Gloria Foster passed away before they made the Mm -hmm. third movie, and so they pulled in another actress to play the Oracle, and I really liked Gloria Foster. So, um, but... I, you know, again, I, they, they, I think they did great with the first two. The third one, I guess they, you know, I can see why they had to do it. Rumor has it there's a fourth I was one say, coming. Are you going to see the fourth one? I, I can't imagine. Yeah, I can't imagine what they're going to do with it. So. I am. I'm curious enough that I'm willing to learn more before I decide if I'm yeah. interested or not. And I understand that all the same cast members have same signed back on. Same cast members are coming so. back. Um, and, I, and one of the Wachowski sisters is uh, writing and directing. So, yeah. so I mean, we'll now see. unfortunately, the Wachowskis have had a very. Uh, poor track record outside of the Matrix movies. So, um, you know, we'll see. I'll, I'll certainly give them the benefit of the doubt, like you said, because, uh, you know, I'm interested and it's got, you know, these wonderful actors again. So, you know, we'll see how it goes. But um, for sure, the Matrix 
wonderful uh, trainer movie. Uh, the Matrix Reloaded, definitely uh, a good one to get through a trainer ride. Uh, we would say pass on the third one unless you, you know, really want to watch uh, something and, you know, it's not terrible. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's right. not the worst thing I've watched on the train. Exactly. I'll put it that way. Yeah. All right. Well, Janetta, thanks for joining me uh, for another episode of Reels for Wheels. And I uh, look forward to talking to you next time about uh, some more movies that we recommend for our listeners to get them through another trainer ride. Thanks. And that's it for another episode of the TriDog Podcast. I hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. Links to the medical references as well as to everything else discussed on the show can be found in the show notes at www.tridogpodcast.podbean.com. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at www.reverbnation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. On the next episode of the TriDoc Podcast, which will be coming soon, I will begin my series taking a deep dive into some of the questions raised by the Netflix documentary The Game Changers. If you haven't seen it, check it out before that. For the first episode in the series, I'll be joined by Dr. Peter Unger, a paleoanthropologist at the University of Arkansas. I will, of course, also have a medical question to answer in another episode of Reels for Wheels. Until then, train hard, train healthy.